Welcome to Wine and Murder Night, a podcast where two friends discuss and drink about their favy. <laughs> <laughs> you really are hungover. I really am hungover. That's Shall I do the you? intro for the special? Just, like, hi. Sure, go for it. You, you take okay. the intro. So what are we even supposed to say? I've never said the intro, so I don't really pay attention. Until Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Wine and Murder Night, a podcast where two friends discuss and drink about their favorite cozy mysteries. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. And I'm Serena Malshausen. And I'm hungover. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is going to be a one glass Wine and Murder Night episode for me. Okay, for her. But I might have two, because this is actually quite tasty, even though it's a plonk, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Tasty plonk is the best kind. I know. Uh, so this is actually kind of a cool wine and murder night. We uh, just wrapped up our first five episodes of Midsummer Murders. So our show today that we're starting that you guys voted on is Father Brown. And I have to confess, I'm a, I feel a little out of my depth in going into Father Brown. And I, on the other hand, am completely in my depth, I suppose. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm a qualified history teacher, along with being a French teacher, and my favourite time period is the intergarum between World War I and World War II, so the 1920s, all the way up to 1955, I suppose, uh, Europe. And probably 1958, the beginning of the European Union. So it's kind of, mm-hmm. it's one of those, this is my time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I think I think this is a kind of a good time to like reiterate kind of what our roles are on this. So I kind of more play like host and narrator, you know, and I'm very much the American perspective because even though we are both technically American, not technically, I was born in this country. <laughs> I know, but well, technically American, but you don't really have a very American upbringing. That's, like that is quite true, and and that and and you have a very word like. Your, your role is really kind of the worldly expert thing, you know, more sort of thing. And you've got the, like, you teach history, you've taught history and stuff like that. Whereas I'm very much like, that is not me, but I do have my own perspective. And I, I quite like media and I watch a lot of media and I write a lot. So yeah. I have some of that narrative stuff on my side. But going into Father Brown, I know practically nothing about 1950s Britain. And while... The book series that Father Brown was written, uh, was based on, was written, actually, originally set in, I think, 1910 or so? Yeah, it was set in World War I. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Chesterton, the person who wrote it, died in 1936. So he would have never seen this Father Brown. And actually, there is an older Father Brown series made in the 70s that's based on the original books and the original time frame. This version of Father Brown that we're watching is set in the 1950s. Yes. And American history education is laughed at for good reason, but <laughs> is extremely American-centric. And I think that's not unusual. Like, I mean, British education is British-centric and things like that. Every country is going to be centric on its own country. So it's not, that's not an insult. But I think the problem is World War II did not affect America as much as it affected all of Europe. So that's mm-hmm. the difference. 
And and it also means that when it comes to a show like this, which is set in 1950s Britain, mm-hmm. I literally know nothing. Like everything I know about 1950s Britain is like from the last season of Foil's War. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, so is it wrong? Kind no, of. I mean, it's a great show, and it, yeah. it was clearly well historically researched and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But, like, I even tried to, like, find... I have a pretty long commute. Uh, I drive generally about 45 minutes to an hour to get to work and back every day. Mm-hmm. And so I listened to a lot of podcasts. So I was, like, looking for, like, a history podcast that maybe I could get some background information. I didn't find any, but the BBC does these wonderful videos for children that explains what World War Two and post-World War Two was like. Um, and when I do my, I actually do a World War Two unit where I, I focus on the resistance in France because I'm a French teacher, but I do a World War Two unit and I show some of the BBC videos, especially about the Blitz. And they do have some videos about the resistance in general. So it wouldn't help you on your commute, but it actually explains a whole hell of a lot. Well, so there's tons of information and tons of podcasts about World War II specifically, but I am trying to find information about post-World War II. And it feels like history and analysis has basically stopped almost yes. like after World War II. And I mean, you get some of the, so you get some really good stuff about like the feminist movement and stuff starting in the 60s, but it mm-hmm. feels like the 1950s is almost kind of a lost era. Well, the 1950s was all about rebuilding society, and the people rebuilding society were women. So men mm. were interested in writing about that. Women were rebuilding society because all of the men had died, <laughs> basically. It, when you think about it. Yeah. And it was only after men had come back and gotten their, you know, their GI bills, basically. Every, you know, every country has something similar to it where they mm-hmm. had veterans benefits. So it was only after men had actually came and were able to retake their leadership roles. 1950s were all about what was going on at society back home. Mm-hmm. And so they would have, obviously, men wouldn't be interested in it and women weren't going to university. So they couldn't have learned about it. They couldn't have become part of the historical record. So it is hard to find information and you do get a lot of um um told history a lot of spoken history um my mother is was born in 1950 five mm-hmm. years after the war had ended and she was born in germany and all i know about post-war germany about what it was like living my 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 grandfather was a veteran of the german side so of the wehrmacht so all i knew about what post-war war two Germany was like it's from her because she lived it mm-hmm. and but you won't you won't find a lot of that in history textbooks and you're not going to find podcasts that talk about it because it's hard to find that so yeah there you go anyway if anybody has any good information about this era feel free to like add us on twitter at wine murder night because I would love to read more about it because I very much feel out of my depth and I, I feel like that's why I have more of a connection with Father Brown than you might, because I I have more of the history behind mm-hmm. it, and that's probably why. But it's a good place to start. Oh, I was going to say, do you want to get right into it then? Yes, of course! Today we're talking about Father Brown, Season 1, Episode 1, The Hammer of God. So we open with a pretty intimidating scene of a young woman sitting on the bed and... Clearly having just had sex with this 
handsome gentleman, but she's very, she's like scared mm-hmm. of him. Very, very clearly scared of him and trying to negotiate how many times this has to happen again. Mm-hmm. We find out very quickly that this guy is a really bad dude. He's basically threatening to kill her husband over some sort of debt. Um, but we also find out that she's a fairly devout person and that she, you know, is is um, a good Christian, a good Catholic girl. Yes. And then that's our that's our cold open. We go straight into to title sequence, which sadly no theremin. No, no theremin, but um, a very kind of jaunty tune. <laughs> I do think I thought it was really funny that like. Right after that cold open, we get, like, this happy little biking scene. I feel like Cozy Mysteries are obligated to have a happy little biking scene. Yes. Yes, of course. And the priest on his bike is such an iconic image in Britain. But mostly during World War I. The pro- okay, so the problem with transferring Father Brown into post-war to Britain is that it was still written in like war one time period pre-war mm-hmm. one and so the even what he's doing is a little out of date it's like not quite right i mean i thought it was i thought it was still pretty good though i th- no it's definitely the other details are spot on but there are mm-hmm. some things that they just didn't transfer over and you're like oh okay that's fine <laughs> <laughs> well i thought it was also pretty funny because there's a scene later in the show when the inspector is trying to track him down and the inspector's in his car like mm-hmm. going really slow beside him and the priest is like and father brown's just like oh i'm sorry i can't hear you and oh, then, like the goes wind. into it the field <laughs> And then, the, you know, obviously the inspector can't follow. But yeah, so we get to start the episode with the usual <laughs> cozy mystery trope of some sort of, like, community gathering. And this yes. is a little tea, kind of outdoor tea. Yeah, a church tea. An Anglican church tea. Which... An Anglican church tea to celebrate the new clock tower and new mm-hmm. bell yes. that the Anglican church has gotten. And we get to meet, you know, an actual, see an actual conversation between Father Brown and the Reverend Bohun. Bohun. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how to say his last name. For me, Reverend Bohun was one of the five British actors. Cheerio, back soon. I don't know, somehow. I wish um, I love you, that's why I'm cheerio. Not goodbye. Ah. And the only one I really recognize ah. from this. Yes, no, that he was not mine. Well, the very... Uh, is it, is it maybe a little bit embarrassing to know this? So he's been in a lot of shows. I yes. looked him up. But the reason I recognized him is that he was in a season of uh, Secrets of a Call Girl. Oh! Oh! <laughs> With Billy Piper. Yes. I had okay. such a big crush on Billy Piper the first time I saw Doctor Who, so I started watching all of her stuff, including Oh, uh, and, oh my god. Call Girl. He was in EastEnders. Mm-hmm. He's been in, like, all of the very, very famous British things. Uh, yes. He's also been in Coronation Street. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. he I recognized him, but he wasn't my five British actor. So, but we get to meet him, and they're kind of joking around and talking about how... He's in. He's invited half of Father Brown's flock, and mm-hmm. Father Brown's like, "Oh, you're trying to steal my Catholics away from me." 
Uh, We also get to actually meet Mrs. McCarthy Mm -hmm. um, and Susie, who is Polish, and they're kind of friendly bickering over who made a better treat for the tea. Mm -hmm. And you do kind of see a little bit of an antagonistic relationship there where Mrs. McCarthy is not particularly fond of having a Polish girl in town. Oh, well, it's hard. It's, um, so all of these Polish people are refugees from London. Mm Mm-hmm where the Blitz happened, and mostly what happened is a lot of people living in London moved out to the countryside where they wouldn't necessarily get bombed. Well, I actually, I read a lot about this, actually. This is the one thing I was able to do a little bit of research on after watching this thing. Um, and I was going to talk about it a little bit later once we actually get to see Susie's home. Yeah. And, uh, so then the Reverend also spots the woman that we saw in the cold open, mm-hmm. um, and he goes over chat with her, and he invites her and her husband, who happens to be the blacksmith. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a, a fun little touch. Like, you never... That's a job we don't have anymore. Oh, blacksmith? Yeah, no. They weren't really in the 1950s. They would have... It wouldn't have been that big well, either. But, you know. Yeah. Bigger, exactly. but, you know. I was thinking that that was actually kind of an interesting job for him because... Mm-hmm. That was directly from the short story. Well, it, but it's also very clear that the barns have money troubles. Yes. So... Having him as a person in a profession that's not particularly necessary at this time of year, like mm-hmm. at this time in history, mm-hmm. and then also linking that up to their suppose their poverty, it makes a lot of sense because I think there is a lot of of, and you would see this in England, and you, but you will definitely in American history there was so much transition yeah. in this era from. Uh, you know, skilled labor, like manual labor, skilled manual labor into automation. Mm-hmm. And kind of the the ripple effects of that are really what caused some of the booms of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Most, I have to say most especially in America. We, yeah. um, America took the war effort and just threw it into capitalist pursuits. Everything had been destroyed in Europe. It was a little bit more difficult to do it. But once we got it up and running, it was, you know, it was fine. But so it took, so America suddenly had this space where they weren't behind Europe and their industrial revolution anymore. Europe had been almost completely destroyed. And so America Mm -hmm. had this space to expand and become the world power we know it today. It was all World War II. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, and then Reagan ruined it, but, but it was all it was all World War Two that that um, helped America really kind of take over the space, and also the destruction of empire and colonial uh, rule in Europe as well. But you know that was because they were fucking broke mm-hmm. <laughs> after two world wars. So you know there you go. really liked the relationship between uh, Simeon and Elizabeth mm-hmm. um, the Barnes and that's that's the blacksmith couple but yeah I mean it was really cute like when he was in the, the kitchen and she had made him a big lunch because she's very clearly feeling guilty about her infidelity yes. and like he go gets kind of a little bit angry with her but then immediately back downs and apologizes yeah. and actually like thinks about his behavior yeah and I was didn't expect that, to be honest. Like, I would, that was a kind of a nice thing to see. It really was. I wish we knew more about Simeon and about mm-hmm. Elizabeth as well. Yeah, I, I thought their relationship was really great. Mm-hmm. And he goes in for some romance, but gets Ooh. interrupted by Mrs. McCarthy, who needs more plates for the 
tea. Yes. And he goes upstairs to get changed to mm-hmm. look a little bit more presentable. Mm-hmm. And he finds the wallet that uh, the man had dropped. Yes. So then we go back out to the tea and Father Brown is sitting on a bench talking to a biologist who's Mm -hmm. trying to convince him about evolution. And then Lady Felicia rolls up. I love Lady Felicia. I love Lady Felicia. I feel like I am Lady Felicia in so many ways. We are meant to love Lady Felicia. (laughs) Like, it is clear emotional manipulation happening on the part of the writers. I don't care. I don't care. I will always love Lady Felicia. She's never done a bad thing in her life. (laughs) I don't care. Minus the fact that she's clearly an adulteress. I don't care. Well, I mean, yeah, no, I didn't care either. I like, I was like, this is clearly the sassy, so beautiful, put together woman that I'm expected to love. And the dude. Anyway. So there you go. I don't care. I don't care if that makes me basic. I don't care if that makes me one of those people who who pretends to be socialist and then goes in for the upper classes. I don't know if you've heard me. I can't help it. <laughs> like, like, I don't know if you've listened to my voice. We definitely did not talk about what wine we were drinking. Oh, I'm sorry. We didn't do that. Uh, I am drinking a leftover from my housewarming party last night, which is why I'm a little hungover. Um, it is a 2011 uh, red Merlin Rouge. It is a 65% Cabernet Sauvignon and 35% Merlot. Yeah. I'm drinking a barefoot Riesling. Of course I am. Oh, God. I'm drinking. You've got to start buying better wine, Sabrina. I get it. I get I know. But, like, also, I feel really bad for your taste buds. No. It's actually not terrible. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, well, we'll find out at the end of the episode yeah. how terrible it is. <laughs> it's not. It's not. Yeah. Lady Felicia, we love her. Uh, yes. We love her. And I will say, like, even though going in knowing that this was set in the 1950s, like, there were... You know, obviously great costuming details, like um, Elizabeth's, uh, she wasn't wearing a corset, but she was very much wearing the 1950s style underwear Mm -hmm. and things like that. But like, it didn't really sit, like hit home how 1950s this was until Lady Felicia showed up and Mm -hmm. that beautiful little bow, you know, shrug and like her hat. Like, I mean, Lady Felicia is just so perfect. Yes. And, well, she would be, she would have everything. Notice that Elizabeth doesn't wear a hat. Mm-hmm. She's not that class. Well, I mean, she wears a hat at the end, but, like, yeah. it's very clear. Like, she's going to, church. Hat she's going to church. But Lady Felicia has a hat for every occasion. And, and it's it, remarked upon by yes. Father Brown. Not only is it remarked upon, there's a reason she's wearing that hat. And we'll get to it in a second. <laughs> So like a barefoot Riesling on a podcast that drinks wine, Norman Bohan shows up uninvited. (laughs) And this is where we kind of find out that the Reverend is his older brother. No. But he's in this like flashy car. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's drinking wine straight from the bottle. Like you do. Like one does at a housewarming <laughs> party, maybe. Um, chug, chug, chug. No, darling. No. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. I did mix my liquors, and I, like, I. it was bad. It was a bad scene. Well, I mean, I was at home, so it was like, I didn't care how drunk I got. Hmm. But, like, oh, man, I got, I got, I mixed my liquors. Don't mix your liquors, kids. No. Don't mix your liquors. 
choose one and stick with it. What are you doing? I was at home. I don't care. I got to go straight to bed. But he, Norman is, says something sassy to Lady Felicia. She tosses his... He says something sassy to all of them. She tosses her drink in his face. Mm-hmm. She's... Love because Lady she's like, the way you're looking at me, I'm sure I've made you randy. What the fuck? Yeah. That's inappropriate at the best of times. In front of, like, a Catholic priest and an Anglican preacher. That's doubly bad. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah, he's an, he's an ass. But he also, he does make actually quite a good point about how their supposed friendship really doesn't actually matter because at the end of the day, they each think each other's going to hell. Yeah, they each think the other one is going to hell, which is a proper point, except that all Christians should believe that all Christians are going to heaven. It's just a matter of taste, I suppose. Like, I've never really, yeah, I've never really thought about it. Like... Well, so that's my other thing is that this is, I'm out of my depth, not only from a historical context, but I didn't grow up in the church, in any church whatsoever. Like, Anglican, we, what we like, Anglican is what we like to call Catholic-like. I heard Episcopalian is Catholic-like. Well, Episcopalian is Anglican. It's just American. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So See, Episcopal- this is how much I know. <laughs> the Episcopal Church is the Anglican Church, except, you know, not in America. And in other, mm-hmm. in other places around the world. And the Episcopal Church just doesn't have the Pope as its head. And everything else is the same. I, uh, I'm assuming you're, when you take the body and blood of Christ in an Anglican or an Episcopal Church, you are actually taking the blood and body. Um, as far as I know, not. I have been to Episcopalian, because my grandparents are both Episcopalian. So I've been to the... Actually, this is so. This is why I have never grew up in the church. So my family, especially on my mom's side, mm-hmm. or rather, I should say, my like grand, my maternal grandmother, mm-hmm. she is Irish American, but like real, real hardcore Irish American. Mm-hmm. In that, like, her dad was, I believe, first gen, mm-hmm. and they were super, super Irish Catholic. Well, and of she has a billion siblings. Mm-hmm. And, of course, my mom is the oldest of five. So, growing up, my grandmother was Catholic. My grandfather was Catholic. Mm -hmm. And when they got married and had kids, they were Catholic. And my mom was born in 58. And uh, my her youngest brother, I don't remember exactly when he was born, but it was, like, mid-60s. And so, they all grew up in the Catholic Church to an extent. Because in the 70s, at one point... And this is in Kansas. So, they're in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Catholic Church, they're at, like, Mass. Mm-hmm. And the sermon is all about how homosexuality is wrong and evil. Mm-hmm. And my grandma takes her five children and stands up and walks right out of the Catholic Church. Good! And so, that's how my family became Episcopalian. <laughs> The Episcopalians just so have the Pope as their head. Everything else is pretty much the same, minus the transubstantiation, because they are Protestant. Well, that said, it was actually, apparently in that time in Kent, and I can only speak to my family's experience mm. specifically, the Episcopalian church they started going to was a lot more liberal yeah. in thought. So Well, no, that's, that's weird, because the Anglican church is liberal. They just, the traditions and the rituals are very yeah. Catholic. But yeah. it's not, but Anglican churches in England have female 
pastors. The Episcopal mm-hmm. Church in America just voted to allow female pastors. And gay ones, openly gay ones as well, in, at least in England. America, America goes back and forth on, on allowing homosexual preachers. But mm-hmm. the Anglican Church is actually much more liberal a church in England. On Nathan's estate, we had a really tiny parish church. Nothing like the one in the show, but it was mm-hmm. teeny, teeny, teeny. It was like a, basically a small, like one room area with a Presbyterian in. So, and we did have an Anglican preacher that came every second Sunday. Nathan was an avowed atheist and I'm fucking Muslim. So it wasn't like we would go every once in a while, but it was kind of like Christmas and Easter for both of us. Mm-hmm. They are much more liberal, possibly because they need to maintain a flock, but also because they are a national church. And I feel mm-hmm. like national churches are uh, more open to me, at least in England, not in France and Germany. But in Iceland and Sweden, yes. Like, so you have the Northern European churches that are very liberal, in, and I guess including England, and then the Southern ones who are strictly ritualistic and strictly by the books. And I have, a, yeah. I have a slightly different experience where half of my mother's family is Lutheran and the other half is Catholic, and I have a Catholic bishop in my family so it's kind of it's 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 quite weird i actually have no negative experience with churches like a lot of people have really bad stories and i'm just like oh i i really i really don't so that's why i like father brown because father brown seems to me a very understanding priest as we see Mm -hmm. in this episode for very many reasons so getting back to the episode real quick, I know, right? uh, <laughs> Mrs. McCarthy uh, goes, sees Norman and Susie fighting over money. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Lady Felicia sings her habanera. Ah, yes. Her <laughs> aria, which is called L'amour est, est un oiseau rebelle. Love is a rebellious bird. Hence her bird nest hat. Oh! Felicia does not do anything by house. Felicia does not. <laughs> <laughs> now I like her even also, more. But here's the thing, the art is from 1875. It would have been terribly old-fashioned by this time, but Chesterton was born in 1875. Oh. So this would have been a very terrible... All the music that they played, everything that they played was 19th century. Very old-fashioned, even in the early 20th, mid-20th century. Like, at this point... It's a little long in the tooth. I wonder if they did that deliberately. And Probably. And kind of a nod. No, no. To... I'm 100% sure they did. But it, it was one of those moments where it was like, God, this music would have been old then. Like, it's ancient now, but it's old. It was even, it was old in 1954. But during her aria, Simeon starts a fight with Boo- uh, with uh, Norman, uh, mm-hmm. because obviously he found the wallet and knows that there's been infidelity and yes. going on like that. And so Norman storms off into the reverend's house, his brother's house, and the reverend follows him and cuts him off from the purse strings. Yes. Oh, no. No, no. Everybody's kind of waiting around for the reverend to get back because the bell is supposed to go off at 3 p.m. sharp Mm -hmm. and he runs in and he's a little bit late, 
but he doesn't miss the bell. And they all count down the bell. Father Brown has pointed out earlier that the clock appears to be about 10 seconds behind. Hashtag hint. <laughs> hint. Hashtag clue. Hashtag clue. <laughs> He's proven right, much mm. to the reverend's consternation. Yes. The bell goes off and we're hearing these, you know, everybody's cheering. And then in the distance, you hear Lady Felicia scream. Lady Felicia scream is the most marvelous thing. And it's very close to the scream we've chosen for I our know. first one. <laughs> when we were looking up the sound effects, I was thinking of Lady Felicia when I told Carolyn to choose a woman's scream for the, for the <laughs> mud. I'm just, I'm just letting you guys know. I really love Lady Felicia. She's great. But we find out that Norman is dead. He's laying in the graveyard. Uh, he's been hit in the back of the head with a hammer. Uh, we get to meet Inspector Valentine. My five British actor. Cheerio for feedback soon. I don't know somehow. I'm Bisham. I love you. That's why I'm Cheerio. Not goodbye. <laughs> he's been, it's Hugo Spear. He's been absolutely everything. But my, f- he's also been in Death in Paradise. He's in Marcella. He's in everything. He's been in Death in Paradise. He has. He has. I did not recognize him at all. Oh, he has. Wait, isn't he, isn't that the first Death in Paradise? The very first one? No, maybe. Yes, it is. It is the first one. Him and Rupert Graves, Carol. Him and Rupert Graves. Do you understand? Anyway, love Hugo Spear, but. He is in the BBC version, the 2014 version of The Musketeers. Oh. And I love Hugo Sphere so much. He is my five British actor. And um, <laughs> he brings the delightful working class accent. I don't know if you've noticed, you probably haven't. Everyone in this episode, except for Susie and Miss McCarthy, have upper class accents. Simeon does not. Elizabeth tries. But everyone else has upper class accents. I wouldn't. I would never have gotten that. Yeah, all of them would have been university educated, minus Elizabeth. Even Lady Felicia would have been very well trained. So they all have upper class accents because of their position in their cl- position in society. However, the detective inspector, who we assume should have been, has a very not. He has a working class accent and I love it because he's a working class man, which tells me that he went from Bobby and worked his way up. That's very cool. Anyway. Reverend, the Reverend accuses Simeon of being the one to murder his brother mm-hmm. and the police find a hammer that came from his forge yes. and go to arrest him. So Elizabeth confesses. Right there on the spot. To says how she does it everything. Mm-hmm. And the Reverend is kind of distraught when this happens. So later he goes to meet up with Father Brown. And honestly, like, this is like the whole get Reverend Brown into the, or get Father Brown into the murder and solving business part of the plot. Yes. And it's good. They do a good job of kind of being like, oh, you like spy novels and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It implies that he's already been doing this. That he and the detective, even though this is our first episode with Father Brown. The only thing that I could think of, though, during this entire scene, because you didn't really get to see it so much in the other scenes, mm-hmm. was how fucking tight his glasses are. Yeah. I Like, I felt physical, like, sympathy pains. And, you know, here's the thing. People don't usually complain about 
having to take off their glasses at night. You know, usually you take uh-huh. off your glasses and it's not like taking off. It's a not like bra. taking your bra. Off. It's not like taking your bra off. But in the 1950s, it would be like that because glasses were that type. Just not oh. everyone. Oh God. Like you, you know can, how people are like sometimes like, oh, I would really love to live in this era and this era and this era. I'm like, no, you don't understand how uncomfortable all of their stuff was. I actually, when I first watched Father Brown, I tweeted that I would love to still be wearing hats and gloves, but it's fucking 100 degrees in Georgia pretty much every fucking day. So it's just not an option. Mm-hmm. But I do love the fashion. I do like not dying of measles. Monster Rubella and Polio. You know, I yeah. like that. I like that. But I think that's the nice thing about fashion is you yeah. can port over the parts of it that you want without having to, yeah. to do anything else. True. I mean, I love 1950s fashion because I look really good in like cinched waist dresses. Everyone looks good in cinched waist dresses. Some people don't look as good in cinched waist dresses, but like some people look better in like empire waist and yeah. stuff like that. But like I look really good in A-line skirts because I got a small waist and a big ass. I do not look good in A-line skirts. I do have a small waist and a big ass, but <laughs> I don't like that look on me. <laughs> and that's totally fine, but like that I love the 1950s fashion yeah. and I definitely definitely wear stuff like that a lot of the times now. Yeah, the 1950s were probably the most flattering for everyone. I think so. I think so. You could get away with it. So Father Brown keeps on going and he gets, he goes down to the police station and he takes confession from Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. I really, he does a good job just kind of being there to listen to her and what basically she confesses to her infidelity, but he finds out that it was because Simeon owed 50 pounds to Norman from his weekly poker game. And I did a little bit of research. Uh, 50 pounds in 1950 would be the equivalent of over, of just about, just over 1,600 pounds in 2018. Which is why she's saying we could lose the house. Yeah, they were, they would have lost everything had she not committed this infidelity because mm-hmm. they couldn't pay it back. Mm-hmm. But she refuses to confess she does not confess to killing anybody Mm -hmm. so father brown knows for a fact she's innocent Mm -hmm. or rather i guess not fact but father brown is pretty convinced he's she's innocent yeah and i think i think elizabeth would not have left that out had she been the actual killer which would have been a very short episode (laughs) right (laughs) i feel like she would not have left that out because she is a good catholic girl we established that from jump yeah, and I like I like how simple this kind of world is. That's why I like Crazy Mysteries, because it's a very simple world. You can trust someone not to lie to their priest. It's, it's one of those things where, yeah, life is simple, but when you're a person of faith, your faith leader is the most, one of the most important people in your life. They're your conduit to whatever God you believe in. Mm-hmm. So lying to them would, wouldn't make any sense. Lying to them would be like lying to God. Yeah. Which is useless. Yeah, because God knows. Exactly. So then Inspector Valentine uh, talks a little bit to Father Brown after the confession, and he's really trying to pressure him to share Mm -hmm. what he learned from Elizabeth because he also doesn't think she's guilty, even though she signed a confession in the Mm -hmm. whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was a really interesting scene where very much Father Brown refuses to share what he learned because it's not right. Yeah, and that's a thread throughout his 
all of Father Brown's episodes, there's there's a moment that comes up where people need him to tell him what the person confessed. And mm-hmm. he takes that part of his job utterly seriously. Although I think that priests are allowed nowadays, if they believe that the person is a, a, an immediate threat, they're allowed to call the police. Like if, if someone comes to you and says, Father, I'm planning on killing my mother tonight. They're, they're allowed to call the police. Now, if they say, "Mother, uh, Father, I have killed my mother, that's a, that's a weird... They can't really... They can't go to the police with that, unfortunately. What I thought was really interesting from a character development standpoint was that Inspector Valentine calls Father Brown a rebel. Yes! And so I think that's where, like, this is our first... Not our first hint, but, like, our first real acknowledgement that he's a very liberal priest in the Catholic faith. Yes. Which gets him into trouble later. But then he does tell him to stay out of it. If he's not going to share his information, he needs to just back off. Also a thread of Father Brown's character. He does it. (laughs) He does not. And in fact, he breaks into Inspector Valentine's office while he's distracted. It's it's one of those, (laughs) great, let's, let's automatically break the rules of criminology. Once again, it's one of those, it's fine because he's a layperson. So, yeah, at least he doesn't need, like, a warrant to break into a place. Yes. That's the point. <laughs> so it's, it's fine. So the next day, the day of Norman's funeral, uh, Mrs. McCarthy tells Father Brown because she saw Susie and Norman fighting. And she talks about whether or not she should go to the police. And Father Brown's like, no, no. But Susie overhears them. Mm-hmm. Only, there's literally, other than the Reverend and Father Brown, only one person attends the funeral, and that's Walker, the biologist. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. I liked this conversation a lot as a foreshadowing moment mm-hmm. where Father Brown is like, well, you must not have thought he was a bad person because you came to his funeral. And he goes, maybe I'm a bad sort, Father. Mm. The Reverend tries to confront Simeon, who basically like refuses to hear it. And meanwhile, Susie makes an obvious lie and... Tries to get out of the house that, like, she's out of disinfectant because she is Father Brown's cleaner. And uh, Mrs. Uh, McCarthy follows her clumsily as she heads back to her refugee camp and starts packing and tries to leave the country. And forgets her passport. The countryside. Yeah, it goes back to London. Yeah. We and so I was actually, this is what I, I actually was very curious about this because. The, the camp that she lives in is, like, a bunch of these tin building. It's very clearly, like, there's a ton of other women and children there. Like, it's very clearly community living. Um, and so I looked up kind of what the situation was about all these Polish refugees. Mm-hmm. And apparently in 1947, Britain passed the Polish Immigration Act, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Polish Resettlement Act. The idea was that this granted... Uh, Polish people, especially those who had fought in the war, ways to assimilate into British society. And they were set up, like these kinds of parks, these kinds of camps were set up across the UK, Mm -hmm. a lot of them outside of London, like you were saying. And in 19, by 1951, the number of Polish born immigrants had swollen to uh, 160,000, which was like basically quadruple the amount that they had before the war. Yep. It was really interesting because there's a lot of articles when I was researching this that were talking about the, there were a lot of articles talking about the Polish war efforts and how they contributed so much and how they were 
oftentimes considered the bravest fighters and things like that. And there were a lot of articles that also mentioned that these people didn't want to go back to Poland because Poland had been sold out by Churchill to the Soviets. Like the Soviets basically got to keep Poland. Basically, yeah. The really weird thing is Poland has a really complicated, uh, complicated and distressing history with World War II and the timeline with World War II obviously invaded and that the invasion of Poland is what really set off the Second World mm-hmm. War. But it had the same issues with that France has that uh Hitler set up a puppet government and expected the Polish people to kind of fall in line or else. However, not enough Polish people resisted. Mm-hmm. But current Polish government makes that a crime to say in Poland. So his so talking about Polish involvement in World War II, ignoring that half of the concentration camps, half of the ghettos for Jews were set up in Poland, ignoring that the resistance was not big, was not a big part for for a few reasons. A Poland is a very Catholic country and wouldn't have wanted Jews in the first place. So mm-hmm. a lot of European countries, actually, to be fair, Jews weren't why we were fighting Germany in World War II, which has a sad thing with Chesterton too, but we'll get to that. But Jews weren't why we went to war with Germany. We didn't care. Nobody mm-hmm. cared. Europe and America themselves were anti-Semitic countries. So Poland itself basically... um didn't ask for it. Of course, no country asked for it, but did not do enough to fight back. And the government was pretty okay with camps and things like that. But the reason why Churchill's an awful person too, um, but the reason why Churchill gave uh, Russia Poland was so that they wouldn't have to do any reparations to Poland. They said Russia would deal with the reparations that Poland needed and the West can you know, work on its own self. They did that with a lot of Eastern European countries that were hurt very badly by World War I and World War II. It kind of fobbed it off to Russia and said, you take care of it. But it did leave a lot of Polish people, especially the ones who did resist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the ones who joined the UK mm-hmm. and, and the allies in fighting against the Nazis. There were several people who basically got stripped of their citizenship. Yes. And so that's part of why this Polish Resettlement Act, which was the first major immigration law, mm-hmm. was passed, was to help the Poles who had helped out the Allies mm-hmm. find a way to live and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting reading about this because, again, I didn't know, I have no background in any of this, but also because so many of the arguments about Brexit that are coming up today are talking about how, like, for the American immigration dog whistles it's always about mexicans right mexicans are coming and taking our jobs but for in europe it's it's eastern europeans well for england it's eastern europeans because of because of romania and croatia when they joined in 2007 and 2013 they left their countries because there, there was they had joined the euro fine but there was still no work in their countries so they came into uh western europe and especially Many, many, many came into England. But I hear a lot of I hear a lot of anti-Polish. Uh... Yeah, you still do. Remember, anyone who speaks Spanish is a Mexican in America, and everyone who sounds Eastern European is obviously Polish, even if they mm-hmm. might be Romanian or Croatian or you know 
mm-hmm. check. So I just thought it was an interesting thing to learn about because there was that sentiment clearly didn't exist the same way that it exists now. Mm-hmm. Like true. there might have been a sentiment, but the Polish people were very clearly set up as, I, I, I don't know, it was... Obviously, refugee camps are not an ideal place to live regardless, Mm -hmm. but it was definitely one of those things where it's like, well, we're trying to do what we can to help, but maybe they didn't go far enough. I feel like they set up the camps, but did not set up anything else. And that's what's happening in Europe now. You have these places where there's a bunch of people hanging out, not doing anything because you don't teach them language. You don't want them integrating. You actually hope that they escape somehow and go to where they originally wanted to go, except they have Mm -hmm. the Dublin Accord, which says that wherever a refugee lands is where they need to make their asylum claim. Mm-hmm. So what happened in places in England, which is why there's such an animus still towards Polish people, is that they weren't integrated very well. They weren't taking the schools, they weren't given you know, they weren't given a crash course in what being English meant. Not that they had to forget what being Polish meant, but they were given no help which is what's mm-hmm. happening now. Like I just thought it was really interesting because you can see a lot of parallels. Oh, yeah. And I already knew that from what happened with the Turkish people coming into Germany. So it's a, it's a, it's a parallel that happens all over Europe, but America doesn't do it the same way, so it's a little different. But almost all of Europe does it that way. Father Brown is heading down to the gambling den to find Simi and he tells her that he needs to go talk to his wife because he's basically intimating that Elizabeth is innocent and trying to eliminate the fact that Simeon actually didn't, you know, mm-hmm. eliminate him from the suspect pool. Mm-hmm. And uh, he does that quite effectively uh, while also making several men lose their money. Yes. And then he gets tipped off by Mrs. McCarthy and Mm. finds Susie down at the train station and basically convinces her not to leave for London. (laughs) She wouldn't have gotten very far without her passport. Let's be right. But he takes her out for tea and he finds out that Susie had been blackmailing Norman because he was bisexual. (laughs) And engaging in relations with another man. That happened to be... Mr. Walker. The biologist. And this was another really great scene. So Father Brown goes to talk to Mr. Walker because he's trying to figure out what happened to the murder. But it takes a good long time for him to basically convince him that he's not about to, like, get him arrested for being gay. Like, not only arrested, but giving chemical treatments, which is Mm -hmm. uh, what they did to Turing, even though he was a war hero. Um... Alan Turing, who invented the Turing, uh, the computer, the Enigma machine that broke German code, unbreakable German code. Interesting fact, again, in researching this Polish thing, apparently it was the Polish mathematicians who broke the first Enigma machine and gave all their information to the Brits, which is how they were able to build the second one machine to, to crack the new Enigma that was worse. Yeah, true, very true. So anyway, but this was a great little scene, and... As he turns around to head back towards town, because Norman's out, or not Norman, uh, Walker is out collecting bugs, uh, the bells from the new church tower ring, and Father Brown looks at his watch and has his aha moment. So then we click straight to, or click, 
Transition straight to um, image of or a fuck. I'm so tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so hungover, guys. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, Reverend Bohren is sitting on a bench. That's literally all they're trying to say. <laughs> but he takes out his Bible and he has a picture of Elizabeth in it. Mm-hmm. Which I, I mean. Obviously, I get what that they're trying to say there, that he has a thing for her. Yes. But, like, also, I thought that was kind of a strange... Yeah. It wasn't the greatest... That didn't need to be that. Yeah, it felt unnecessary that he had this thing for her. Yeah. Especially given that she was clearly a Catholic. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he climbs up to the top of his proud new bell tower, and Father Brown is waiting for him. And he basically says, I know you did it. Here's how you did it. And if you confess to me, I will let you go scot-free. All I want is the truth. Mm -hmm. So he does. He saw Norman, his brother, go when he was trying to fix the clock um, from being 10 seconds slow. He saw Norman go into the shed with Walker, his lover. And he threw the hammer straight from the top of the bell tower into the back of Norman's head. And he 100% was convinced that it was God's will that guided the hammer. That's a little, it was a little unhinged. Just a little. It was a little unhinged. Just a little. Which, okay, so it was a gay panic defense. But, Mm -hmm. you know, um, not surprising. This is the 1950s, so... Mm -hmm. Father Brown is super enlightened. But I thought it was really, I really actually really liked how Father Brown convinced him to go with him and actually confess to the police. Yes. And he talks about how he's like, you clearly have a guilty conscience, which is why you haven't changed the bell tower to be correct. Mm -hmm. And it like this absolute wondrous delivery of this line. uh, God is not your scapegoat. Which, no, he isn't. Very good. Yeah, and I thought that was really great. I thought that was really, really great. Mm -hmm. And basically, the reverend actually goes and confesses to the inspector, and Elizabeth is freed from jail, and the button on the episode is basically everybody going to church, and Lady Felicia shows up in this fantastic dress, and this fantastic hat, and Barnes's come by. and (laughs) And Simeon's like, I'm only here for the music. And Father Brown says, well, you won't be disappointed. Yeah, I mean, I can appreciate that. I'm generally there for the music, too. And um, Father Brown just refuses to take any thanks from Elizabeth. Yes. I thought it was a nice, subtle little button on the episode. I did, too. Did you figure it out? Yes. It's always messing about with time, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. When you mess about with time, you are the murderer. And guess who is the only one messing about with time? Yep. There you go. It, it's not that it's easy, because sometimes they do, but not often. Mm-hmm. Like, the person messing about with time is always the one that's killing Because they, they have set up an alibi for themselves. Right. I don't think I figured it out the first time around that I watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty confident I thought that it was Walker who killed him in kind of a reverse gay panic. Killed him for hitting on uh, Felicia. Right, or killed him for basically not being hit in love with him. Yes, like he was with him, yeah. Right, but I did second time around, like, I mean, obviously I knew who did it, but the second time around, the minute I realized he was late, 
because of the bell thing, I was like, oh, right. <laughs> messing about with time. Oh, Hashtag right. messing about with time. <laughs> so I, th- I think it was a fairly straightforward little mystery. Yeah. Honestly. Did you like this episode? I did. Um, it was a nice first episode. We got to meet everyone that was going to be important in the story. Like, we met Susie, and we met Lady McCarthy, or well, Miss McCarthy and Lady Felicia. We met everyone that was supposed to be, that was going to be important. I, so, at, the first time I watched this episode, I really didn't particularly enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And... I think watching episodes for this show mm-hmm. has changed the way I watch them. Like, because the first time I watched it, I watched, like I've said before, I watch most of these cozy mysteries when I'm trying to like embroider or do something else just so I can have it on in the background. And I didn't particularly enjoy Father Brown as a character mm-hmm. the first time around I watched it. And this time I still didn't particularly, I don't think it's not like I related to him, but I respected him mm-hmm. watching it this second time. And I really liked the way it was written and the very subtle little details that were there. And I loved the relationship between Elizabeth and Simeon this time around. So I will say I liked it. And I wasn't expecting to. I was expecting to not like it because I hadn't liked it the first time around. And I liked when Father Brown got incredibly angry with Bohan about using God as a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. He gets apoplectic. And I read a review that said you were putting 21st century issues into a a 20th century story. And I'm like, no, they were always gay people, friend. (laughs) And their issues were always like this. And there were always people that hated them, including their family members. So not Mm -hmm. so much of a 21st century issue. Actually, like less of a 21st century issue, to be quite honest. Yeah. (laughs) But Father Brown being as... He, the reviewer pointed out that G, uh, G.K. Chesterton would certainly not have agreed with Father Brown and his homo- like his stance on homosexuality. And I'm like, well, you know, G.K. Chesterton also thought that uh, it was the Jews' fault that Hitler was around. So really, <laughs> you know, whatever. Okay, so here's the thing about Chesterton. He was anti-eugenics. So in a way, he was anti-Hitler. But he also literally was like... Uh, Hitlerism is just a branch of Judaism. So basically, it's the Jews' problem that Hitler is a thing. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that is literally what? the exact... Yeah, yeah. I, I can think of nothing that makes less sense. Yeah, I know. I was like, uh... He was, he was against the Nazis, but not against... See, the problem is not against Jews himself. Yeah. So, um, he, his short stories and nonfiction include stereotypes of Jews. Um, he believed that Jewish people always kind of, they were Jewish first and then whatever nationality they were second. So it's kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're, and I don't mean this in the, I don't mean this to support his anti-Semitic views. But I do mean, I do think that there are a lot of people who actually feel that way about their religion mm-hmm. or, or about something else even. Yeah. Like in America, there's that whole like, there's the whole states rights versus federal rights like mm-hmm. kind of thing. And there's some people who are very more like 
Texas till I die, but when America tries to step in and police what Texas does, they mm-hmm. can fuck right off. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of thing. Which, okay, and I want to tell those people, living in Georgia, you're fucking lost. <laughs> Sorry, you know, you're fucking lost. And also you were a traitor to the idea of America in the first place, so I don't really know what to tell you. Like, yeah, at that no, point, I mean, I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I myself am definitely more of a, like, the federal government has a lot more clout and can do a lot more good than your state government can. But also, please vote in your local elections. Yeah, for me, <laughs> we, America has never quite decided about what is a federal power and what is a state power. And we mm-hmm. can't even agree enough to even make the state powers the same or even similar. Like, California and its work with environmentalism and then Texas trying to destroy every bit of it. But Texas wants its district judges to control California's rules as well. So I'm like, you can't have it both ways. Right. But anyway, my point is more so that like, there's certainly, there are certainly people who don't see themselves as a national, like, you know, as, as a citizen first. Like there's really no such thing as, a nation it's just imaginary borders that we came up with because of whatever so i understand i'm i am i'm not i'm an anti-nationalist i realized that i was raised in a german culture that i was raised in an american culture that i was raised in an english culture but i am a black american who doesn't know where in africa they came from but because i'm black i i have this whole list of things this must be true about me as a black person Okay. On the other hand, this must be true about me as a German person. <laughs> so it's one of those things where nationalists will tell you that you need to behave one way as a member of that nation. Then racists will tell you that you have to behave in a certain way because of your race. And race and nationality have nothing to do with each other. Ever. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where I understand when people say, well... I'm this first before I'm this, but nations don't mean anything. And there are nations that exist now that didn't exist a hundred years ago. It's one of those things where it's different when you're the person saying it about yourself and somebody else is the person saying it about you. Yeah, of course. Of course it is. And that's that's where it comes from. It's like, you can't tell me what I am, but I can tell you what I am. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's a thing that should be accepted and kind of explained, but... I call myself a European before I, you know, well, Mm -hmm. I come from Germany, but I call myself a European first, and that should be it. And that's what the EU is trying to do, not erase your ethnic identity by any means, but to bring harmony to Europe after World War II. Mm -hmm. You know, because they were like, walls weren't really fixing things. (laughs) Let's, (laughs) Let's try something else. Did you like your wine? Yes. It was slightly sparkly, which was unusual for a reason. I'm pretty sure that's not supposed to be the case. It was. It was kind of bubbly. It was fine. It was. I can't. I. I can't. I. Mm, barefoot. Mm. Girl, you are strong. I don't always drink barefoot. No, barefoot red wines are disgusting, and probably the whole reason I can't drink red wines. But. <laughs> But the white wines aren't terrible, except that Pinot Grigio's, but all, I, f- I have a feeling that all Pinot Grigio's are just bollocks. I like Pinot Grigio. Okay, well, you know, Italian wines are shit. 
<laughs> and we're back. Yes. Uh, mine is a French wine. I quite enjoyed it. Of course you would, because it's a French wine. The well, only... so here's the thing: is I, I'm not, I'm not as as uh, as picky as you are about that. In fact, I had a Sangiovese that I thought was quite tasty this week, also. But mostly, I think I would have enjoyed it less or more had I been not hungover. <laughs> yes, I'm actually the sober one. Well, I I'm, I'm always the sober one. I'm probably soberer than you are, no. honestly. I'm, I'm just I'm really have... tired and I kind of have a headache. <laughs> <laughs> I've had the one glass, that's it. I also... It's a one glass episode. It's a one glass episode, uh... yes. We're remarkably sober. We're remarkably sober. You can find us on Twitter at Wine Murder Night, and you can find me on Twitter at Classlicity. You can find me at STM Rights. You can email us if you have a longer question, or if you have recommendations uh, for things that we can read about the 1950s. We, me personally, can read about the 1950s in Britain. I mean, if you want to send me more. I'm always interested in more, but make sure that it's about women. <laughs> you know, but you can email us our, our podcast at uh, wineandmurdernight at gmail.com. And you can find our, please, 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 please uh, find our podcast on iTunes. Give us a lovely little review, even just a rating. Tell your friends more subscriptions makes my heart happy. And we would like to thank Anton Kuryakov for the use of our intro and outro song, uh, This uh, Simple Life, off the album Restart and or Rest Art. Very good pianist. Strong recommend that you check out some of his work. Yeah. Till next time. Bye. Bye.